The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Make yourselves so comfortable. Normally at this time we'd be greeting each other. So just that sense of community, knowing that there are other people around doing the practice. I'm really grateful for the volunteers here in the room. We have a few of our more technical volunteers helping us. And uh, CenturyLink, our internet provider, came this afternoon, and so we'll redo what we tried to do this morning, having our morning, our Sunday morning weekly practice group. Instead, it will be our Sunday night weekly practice group. And as I mentioned this morning, we've been spending the first part of the year since January, I think, looking at the Buddhist teachings on spiritual path. The Buddha, you know, the great skill wasn't just that he was able to wake up and realize this freedom from grasping, this heart that's free of grasping, but he was also able to articulate a path that when we hear it, and reflect on it, and use it, you know, in a sense, to illuminate our own experience as a human being. People throughout the generations have found that really useful. So, in a way, the superpower of a Buddha is their articulation of what they went through as a human being, looking at their own heart and mind, and then sharing that in a way that's really useful for others. And that's really these teachings, the Buddhist teachings on path. So earlier in January, we looked at how this initial aspect of wisdom is just when an ordinary human being realizes that how I'm showing up in the world, how I'm relating, my views, my attitudes, all of that matters, that everything matters. And we get to this place, slowly usually, where we no longer want to live on autopilot. And this is, in, in a sense, the first you know, coming on to a spiritual path. We still don't know, still don't realize how things matter or how to be, how to be skillful, but we're interested. And we, you know, we naturally start to pay attention what appears to me to be a skillful way to be relating right now? What way of relating seems to be causing stress? And we start to map out from our own experience, map out what is helpful, what isn't helpful, what attitudes bring clarity and allow me to be more skillful, what attitudes lead me to plant seeds of suffering for myself and others. So that's wisdom. And then that really, that development of that first level of wisdom really helps us to start to take responsibility for all of our relationships, everything that we're in relationship to. So generally, just relating to survival, like how we make our living, how we get through the day, how we find a place to live and food to eat, as well as all the specific relationships, people we love, people we have to be with because they're our boss or our colleague at work or whatever it might be. 
until we bring mindful awareness, this wisdom awareness, to this more gross or dense level of our lives, how we're relating, this ethical or moral area of life. And that, that's what we talked about in February and early March. Wise speech, wise livelihood, wise action. So now we're moving to the third part of the path. So we have the wisdom part, and we're going to return there after a few weeks. We have the sila, the ethical conduct, living with integrity, valuing non-harming in our relationships. And then we have this part of the path that is about bringing wisdom and awareness to the mind and really wanting to take care of the mind. And this is especially relevant at this time, this time of the coronavirus, and so much has changed so quickly in our lives. We Probably most of us hardly recognize the world we're living in, and the sense of our routines have changed so much. And because of that, a lot of uncertainty, like where is this going? What's going to be next? And so how do we take care of our heart and mind? I mean, just to realize in any given ordinary moment during the day that there is a heart and mind and that it deserves compassionate care, that's a huge step because a lot of the times we're so busy and so distracted and so caught up in whatever dramas have come our way that we, I mean, it's really surprising, but we actually forget the central responsibility that there is this mind and heart and it deserves real care. And there's ways to care for the heart, the mind, skillfully, and there's ways to care that don't help at all. And so it's, you know, in other words, it's really a place for learning. How am I caring for the heart and mind? Is it, is it actually helpful? When I care for my mind, my heart in this way, does it lead to a deeper healing? In Buddhism, we talk about that healing as a movement towards samadhi or unification or the gathering and collectedness and stability and evenness and balance. The heart and mind that knows how to be radically present not afraid to be real and intimate and awake and responsive and engaged. That's the healing we're interested in. So however, you know, whatever our strategy might be for caring for our mind, is it actually working? Like are we moving in the direction of that beautiful, stable, loving balance, kind presence, or not? Are we moving in the direction of a, more, of a more reactive and fragmented and superficial reactive mind? And this is, you know, this is not so hard to sense, except we don't, it doesn't occur to us to take responsibility. But interestingly, we like taking responsibility for other people's minds and hearts. <laughs> you know, it's amazing how often, at least some of us, we're willing to give advice to other people about taking care of their mind and their heart and how they may be planting seeds of suffering and stress. 
you know, without really taking that medicine ourselves. Okay, how's the heart doing? How's the mind doing? What's going on here? You know, especially at this time, there's, you know, because of the uncertainty, the more basic level of our mind's conditioning is likely to be triggered. This, sometimes we hear about this stress response as a, a triggering of fight or flight. But there are other aspects, you know, these deeply ingrained habits when we're afraid, when we're triggered. Fight might also include wanting to fix my life, wanting to fix somebody else, wanting to fix the world. And even in this situation, like buying a lot of toilet paper, much more than we might need, or other ways that that, like wanting to feel safe, leads my mind to its fighting and fixing and controlling. And just to think about that and to ask the compassionate question, is it actually helping? Because sometimes, you know, taking responsibility, doing what needs to be done actually does lead to a sense of well-being. And sometimes it activates more anxiety and stress. And running hiding, distracting, you know, some of the other Fs, fight, flight, and there's also the freeze, like because of the anxiety, the uncertainty, because we're not sure what to do, we can fall into this habit of freezing up and just wanting to sleep, wanting to avoid engagement with being a human being, being a, a beast, an animal who needs to eat and needs to survive and needs to care for those around them, but we want to retreat into some bubble. And these are you know, examples of what I might call freezing up, as if somehow we've uh, not being engaged is a long-term strategy for living our lives. But there's some other these um, examples of strategies that come out of a, an uncertain time when we're, and it's not that this time is the only uncertain time, it's just that the uncertainty and vulnerability, insecurity is just so much more obvious now. It can't be denied. So we see these deep grooves, reactive grooves, to fight, to fix, to flight, to run away, to freeze, to fixate, right? This is a, a, a way of freezing up is the mind fixates on things that aren't ultimately that important. Like even fixating on needing to listen to the news, even though there hasn't been that much difference from the last hour we listened to the news. Or we can fixate on, like, I need to finish this series, this television series. Or fixate on a particular problem. I need to solve this as a way of really being present in our lives. And what are we present for? Well, the uncomfortable feeling that we don't know how this is going to play out. 
And this is always true in our lives. We don't know how life is going to play out. Maybe it's a little bit more obvious right now. And the last is this tendency to follow the lead of somebody else who maybe is claiming to know what to do. <laughs> and so we look for a leader, you know, and sometimes the leader who appears to, or at least claims to know what to do. Because we just can't stand that yucky feeling, the unpleasant feeling of uncertainty and vulnerability. And this is why we want to take care of the mind because we're always these grooves, these unhelpful grooves. In Buddhism, we talk about it as the tendency, the deep groove to lust, to wanting, to greed, the deep groove of aversion and fear and control and hatefulness, and the deepest groove of ignorance or delusion. And really, the definition of delusion is pretending that we know when we actually don't know, like fixating on something, self-righteousness, the, the absence of humility and the absence of being open and the absence of being a learner, like really listening from that receptive place and finding out moment by moment what's a skillful thing to do, not because we have a plan that we're fixated on, that we're holding as the truth, but that we're actually open and listening and even if we do respond, because it seems like this might be helpful, we're still listening because we may not be right. But not knowing what's right doesn't keep us from exploring. Well, let's try this, and I'll pay attention, and I'll see if it seems to be helping. And if it's not, I'll stop, and I'll try something else that seems like it might help, but I'll continue to pay attention to see if it actually does help. And this is really the way of humility and how we need to move forward in our lives. So the first step to taking care of our mind is we have to be willing to feel what it feels like to be who we are in this moment, to have a sensitive heart, mind, body that feels like this, that is like this right now. And that can be a difficult coming home, and especially if we've been living in a reactive way or a distracted way for a long time. And then we get this kind of instruction that, you know, if you really want to be skillful, if you really want to be helpful for yourself and for others, you need to stop and simply feel what you're feeling right now. Stabilize, like learn how to meet your life as it's actually presenting itself, free of our ideas that we have about who I am and whether I'm skillful or not, but let the truth speak for itself. Like, it feels like this now. The bodily experience, the quality of my mind and heart, all of that is like this. Because otherwise we don't know if the impulse to action, to say something, to do something, we don't know if it's arising because we don't, we don't know how to be present 
or if it's arising because there's some clear intuition about what might actually be helpful. So we actually have to, we actually have to look. And this, like I mentioned, this is not so easy for us to come home. I like how uh, Venerable Analio, this German monk who's been just a wonderful translator and teacher in our community, the wider early Buddhism community here in the West now for a while and has just written some impactful books, teaches a lot now at the Berry Center for Buddhist Studies. I like how when he's talking about Satipatthana, the foundations, the sort of teachings, the Buddhist teachings on mindfulness, really grounding that. He uses this as the hub of the practice, this embodied awareness. Okay, honey, how does it feel? What is it like now for the heart to turn back in? Oh, yeah. This feeling of body, this feeling of sensitivity, this exposure to my life, it feels like this now. Whether that feeling has the quality of numbness or hardness or heat or ice or lightness and joy, right? It could be whatever it is. It will be whatever it is. And then it's not enough to connect, but then to sustain like that, that resolve that it's really a, our ultimate commitment, this commitment to being present, to live to the lived experience of our lives, this embodied awareness. This is a really interesting quote from uh, another Western Buddhist monk, great translator and teacher, Ajahn Tanisaro, Ajahn Jeff, as he's sometimes called, the abbot of the monastery outside of San Diego, Wat Metta. And in one of his books, he was uh, telling a story where a Western anthropologist was in conversation with a shaman. And uh, the anthropologist was asking the shaman about the tribe's belief systems. And the shaman had this amazing, amazingly wise and insightful answer where he said something like, look, we don't believe, we fear. And that's an interesting, uh, you know, we might sort of, oh, yeah, you know, some indigenous culture, don't have the sophistication of a Western culture or something like that, right? Might bring our own biases to that. But there's some real honesty, groundedness about that perspective. We're not wasting our time believing the ideas our own thinking mind have constructed about what's true. We're willing to enter this space of normal, ordinary um, uneasiness with change, with vulnerability, with insecurity, because it's the way that it is. So why bother 
constructing some hopeful vision or some whatever, why not just relax into the uncertainty of our lives as an animal, right? as a feeling sensitive beast? Now, we might not say it in the way that the shaman said it. Look, we don't believe, we fear. But it's really, I think, central to the Buddhist teachings about this, like if we're going to take care of our heart and mind, if we, if even on an intellectual level it makes sense, and especially in this uncertain time, it seems to make, like, how can we be useful for each other it makes even more sense. I need to take care of this mind. I need to take care of this sensitive heart. Or I'm not going to be able to take care of, support my own well-being, let alone the well-being of others. Then we realize that taking care of it is going to demand an honest relationship to what's going on here. Oh, I'm afraid. I'm uncertain there is this frightened animal, this animal you know, conditioning that wants to be safe, that finds itself in a world where we're not in control of all the circumstances, all the conditions. This is the existential situation of the heart and mind. We're in this anxious place. So then... Our practice now is grounded in reality and it can do some good. But if we're grounded in a constructed reality, some idea that we're believing in, some story that we're believing in, then any sort of approach to taking care of ourselves is going to be off from the start because we're addressing the problem that our own mind has constructed instead of addressing the issue at hand. What is the issue at hand? There's a body, there's a sensitive heart, there's change. There's uncertainty, there's vulnerability, there's insecurity. That's the existential, that's the truth of the moment. And when we start to address that, then we can actually see what helps and what doesn't help. Like when we have a more honest connection to the underlying dukkha of change, the not liking change, not liking insecurity, then we can see what way of being, what way of relating, what qualities of the heart and mind help to alleviate that uneasiness of the heart, that tension in the mind. What ways of relating make things worse? And boy, this is a perfect time to be seeing what actually helps, what is in the direction of a more relaxed and engaged and nimble response to the life that's being lived. And what ways of relating, what ways of being create more fear, more tightness, more heaviness? 
in the same passage, um, Ajahn Tanisaro was saying that the Eightfold Path then, right, is really a kind of purgative. Right? It helps to uproot or helps the heart release what isn't helpful. And, and the really powerful, important teaching is that simply seeing things, and especially as we turn the awareness toward the embodied experience and the activity of mind and how the mind is relating to all this, <clears throat> when we turn the awareness inward, it's not about we're turning inward so we can get in there and fix it. Illuminating the activity of the mind, the attitude of the mind, the underlying views, that illuminates what's skillful and unskillful. The liberation, the, the uprooting, the purgative is that clarity itself, seeing things as they are. It's really hard to trust that because what we really trust is like getting in there and personally fixing ourselves or getting in there and personally fixing our friends and fixing our partners. and We somehow don't trust that illuminating our lives, being willing to feel what we feel, stripping away the overlay, the projections, just in a more simple and especially ongoing way, just following the thread of lived reality, you know, the sensitivity of the heart. I mean, really, it could be as simple as curious about the heart getting tight, curious about the heart not being tight. In a way, this is a simple version of talking about the Buddha's teachings on the Four Noble Truths. Oh, this is tightness. This seems to be causing or supporting that tightness. This is the release. This is the mind, the heart free of that tightness. Oh, this is how that releasing of tightness happens. Really, that's just another way of talking about there is suffering, there's a cause, there's an ending of that suffering, and there's a path, the Four Noble Truths. These are really a pointing to a way of practicing. In, re in regards to the mind itself, you know, taking care of the mind, this is what the Buddha says in the Satipatthana Sutta, the discourse on the foundations of mindfulness, when he's talking about mindfulness of the mind. In this way, one remains focused or you could say, in this way, one remains open internally on the mind in and of itself, or externally on the mind in and of itself, or both internally and externally on the mind in and of itself. Or one remains clear and open on the phenomenon of the arising with regard to the mind, or the phenomenon of passing away with regard to the mind how these qualities of mind, states of mind, come and go. Or one's mindfulness that there is a mind, a knowing mind, is maintained to the extent of knowledge and remembrance, and one remains independent 
not clinging to anything in the world. This is how a practitioner remains aware of the mind in and of itself. And then um, a little later in that discourse, the Buddha very specifically tells us how to illuminate the mind. Because the idea, once we realize, once we remember, oh my goodness, there's a body and there's this knowing mind, this mind that's in relationship to sense experience. Right? That's relevant. Needs to be seen. So, But it's subtle, so we need these instructions to help us illuminate or notice the mind. In a way, it's a series of questions. And the, the um, transformation, the purification of the mind, the healing of the mind happens because wisdom is knowing. Not because I'm going to fix my mind, but because wisdom is seeing clearly. So the questions, these questions or more about seeing what's there to see than it is about judging or fixing. So the Buddha says in this discourse, when the mind has passion or greed, a practitioner discerns that the mind has greed. When the mind is without greed, one discerns that the mind is without greed. So this is simple. We could even look right now. We notice the quality of the heart and mind. Is there some kind of wanting? Some kind of energetic leaning forward? This promise, if only then I'd feel good. Whatever it might be, if only I were in bed. If only I could get back to work then I'd be happy, or then things would be good. Now, again, it's, it's so easy to think that we're, we need to judge ourselves if there's greed. But we just want, the Buddha says, when the mind has passion, greed, lust, then wisdom knows, okay, there's greed. And when the mind, this is equally important, we missed the second piece, when the mind is free of greed, then there's that simple clarity. This is a mind free of greed. So it's like this would be on a Buddhist quiz, you know. What is your experience of a mind free of greed? Have you clearly, honestly recognized the mind free of greed? Because initially in our practice, we get relatively good at noticing greed. But we want to be just as good at noticing non-greed. And then you can see the, where this is going. Same thing. When the mind has aversion, which would be fear and hatred, irritation, impatience, right? All the different flavors of aversion. When the mind has aversion, get angry. <laughs> no, when the mind has aversion, one simply discerns that the mind has aversion. When the mind is without aversion, free of aversion, one discerns that the mind is without aversion. When the mind has delusion or distractedness 
or fixation, like thinking it knows, that's delusion. When the mind has delusion, then one discerns, oh, the mind has delusion. This is ignorance. Ignorance is like this. When the mind is without ignorance, without delusion, one discerns that the mind is without delusion. Joseph Goldstein says, identification imprisons us in the content of our conditioning. It's a nice description of delusion. When the mind is identified with some concept, some idea, the mind then is imprisoned in the content of that idea, that conditioning. And just being in that bubble is, is a good definition of delusion. So these are six things to look for. The mind with greed, mind without greed. With aversion, without aversion. With delusion, without delusion. So especially when you're sitting and the mind feels relatively stable, hearts settled, is there greed in the mind? Oh, this is a mind free of greed, apparently. Still some humility, we're not clear that we're seeing things, everything that's there, but no greed is apparent. Okay, is there aversion in the mind or non-aversion? Mind free of aversion. Distractedness, delusion in the mind. We're free of that. And then the next two are more about uh, energy level. When the mind is constricted, one discerns that the mind is constricted, which you might interpret to mean, as some teachers do, as too little energy sloth and torpor. And then the next, when the mind is scattered, one discerns that the mind is scattered, like too much energy, worrying, remorse, unsettled. So too little or too much energy, constricted or scattered. So then that's a total of eight things. And it's a good list to remember, you know, just to, to make sure that because often there's an activity of the mind that we're just presuming is me and I don't have to look at. So when we have these questions, it will illuminate that activity of the mind as just something being known. So whatever that flavor of aversion is, or non-aversion, some kind of kindness and acceptance, then we see, oh, that's just that aspect of the mind, that quality of the mind being known. It's not me or self, it's just kindness or aversion, generosity or greed, clarity or delusion, constriction, dullness or scatteredness, restlessness. It's just one of those eight things being known. And you can see that really stabilizes the mind because now whatever those eight things might be present in that moment in the mind, because the mind realizes it's just something being known, it doesn't have to react to it in its predictable way, its habitual way. As it said in the Dhammapada, this collection of verses, there's no fire like lust, like greed, that burning hunger of greed. There's no grip like anger, we actually feel that energetically, like when we've been raging or angry for a long time. The heart actually feels like it's in a grip. 
And there's no net, confusing net, entangling net, like delusion. Like being, trying to clarify the mind by thinking, by conceptualizing, instead of clarifying our situation by connecting with reality. The Buddha has more to say about mindfulness of the mind. The second part is really about, and we'll talk about it maybe next week, but it's really about a movement towards jhana or this deepening of concentration and just sort of recognizing a mind that's settled, that's not entangled with greed or non-greed, anger, non-anger, delusion, non-delusion, neither tight nor scattered, it's a really nicely balanced mind, then we're noticing the expansion of that mind and whether it could be even more expanded so that it can't be surpassed and, and really still free of craving, free of anything that fragments the mind. And even a mind that's released or empty of any kind of selfing temporarily. So this is like a development of a really beautiful, concentrated mind, which is we would want to be aware of that too. So maybe the concentration good is good, but is it unsurpassable good or just good? As we has, um, does the mind recognize a state that's even more settled than this, more quiet, more peaceful, less activity until that mind realizes a moment, oh, this is the mind free of grasping. This is the mind without much selfing. And to know that. And you see, this really sets up wisdom because to, the, to whatever degree we, we start to touch into states of, of relative peace, relative freedom from grasping, from anxiety, from identification with anxiety, then we can see these unwholesome qualities take birth in the mind and there's a chance to see that they're not self. It's just a habit. So when fear gets triggered again, because the mind is in a very peaceful, balanced place, when the fear arises, it's easier for the mind to recognize, oh, that's just fear not self, it comes and goes, and it's not self. I don't need to be afraid of fear. I don't need to be identified with fear because wisdom knows that fear is just this quality of mind that's been triggered, blossoming for a moment or two, and if not identified with, it will disappear on its own. And because at a time like this, you know, there are probably going to be a lot of triggers. And what we're really hoping is that this spiritual urgency will come online. This is from Saida Utejaniya, this Burmese monk and, and wonderful teacher I've been able to be a student of. And he says about Samvega, spiritual urgency, he says, spiritual urgency is a kind of wisdom, 
understanding the fundamental nature of experience can lead to a strong feeling that we must complete the practice. For example, we may realize that we can't escape having to experience. Right? We can't escape being a sensitive human being, having a life, having a body, and a sensitive heart. No way around that. And he says, we must experience and experience and experience. And this may feel like an oppressiveness we are constantly needled by. If we truly felt this as dukkha, as a kind of deep unsatisfactoriness, as pain and suffering, how fast would we run toward the past? And so tonight, you know, I'm talking about the past in terms of this deep interest in getting to know the mind so we can take care of it. We can't really take care of the mind and heart if we don't get to know it. And to get to know the mind, we have to turn inward. Right? And we have to initially be willing to feel what it feels like to be undistracted. So we're feeling all that we've been avoiding feeling. And it takes some time just to stabilize that, that embodied awareness, the sensitivity of the sitting body and the sensitivity of the feeling heart. And to follow that thread, not to forget it for moments, seconds at a time, minutes at a time, that thread of present moment reality. So we'll come back to this next week. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.